first I'd like to say I'd really like to just have kind of a casual event because um, although I now have a, an honorary doctorate, I really only have a BA in Chinese studies, so I so I'm not very accustomed to standing behind a podium. We usually stand out like this when we talk to people. Um, but I like to have uh, kind of an open event. I'll, I'll uh, talk with a, I'll start with a little introduction myself, but then throw things open for questions because I'd like to hear what you have to say. Uh, first of all, thanks again to the University of Alberta for the tremendous honor of the honorary doctorate yesterday, and uh, also for organizing my show the day before at the Meyer Horowitz Theater, 720 seat theater. We filled it up and we did my comedy show in Mandarin and uh, all the proceeds are going to help support students uh, from the University of Alberta who are participating mainly in that uh, Harbin Study in China program, the summer program. So I hope people will uh, take advantage of that and treasure this wonderful China Institute that you have here at the University of Alberta. Now, I was just thinking as I was in the hallway there, we don't have that up, but you know, because we've got a lot of Chinese, we have a lot of uh, high school students here learning Chinese, right? And that Pan character, Dashan, one, one of the reasons the name stuck as a stage name is that Dashan are like two of the first characters you ever learn, right? That's really easy to remember. <laughs> How many people recognize that Pan character? Do we have that up or can we write that on the board? We don't have a pen even. I've got a permanent pen. Yeah, it's just uh, the other poster, maybe. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say, well, I've already done the Dashan Kan Dashan performance, which is me just talking about me, me telling my story. So today, what we're going to do is have a Dajia Kan Dashan. Dajia Kan Dashan. And just to introduce that character for you for the high school students, because this is not really proper Chinese, actually. And the way we use Kan in that phrase is a slang phrase. It's not a, it's a slang use. It's not the actual proper use of the character. The character itself, there it is. See? right? It's a man, person on the side, and then a coal for the mouth. And then the three lines on the bottom are the blah, blah, blah. And that's what kan means. Actually, the, so the, the dictionary definition of kan means straight and upright. Kan, kan, That's the proper use of the word. But it, the slang use of the word is just this kind of shoot your mouth off. People say, ah, that didn't kan, right? He really knows how to speak. But actually, what it means is he really knows how to bullshit. He's a bullshit. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'd like to have a kan and um, I start by mentioning because I, I did uh, I didn't learn any Chinese until I was 19. So for me to see high school students doing Chinese before you get to university, uh, and really the re one of the reasons is you know, I, I have to be careful telling this story because I really had nothing against the French language, but I was just terrible at French. I have no gift for languages. I studied French through public school for nine years, and I passed the exam basically, but I. I ended up in grade 12, you know, horrible, dysfunctional French. Just enough to pass the test. And I dropped French and uh, immediately really felt kind of regret for not learning a second language. Right? We can, in Canada, we can't really call French a foreign language, a second language. I wanted to learn something, and not French, not Spanish, not all, none of those European languages. Actually, my first idea was I wanted to learn Swahili. I thought that'd be really cool. But I didn't have any, I didn't have any uh, Swahili or African friends. But I did make a Chinese friend uh, that summer after grade 12, and started to learn a little Chinese, bought some tapes, and just uh, started doing it on my own. But I really didn't start studying Chinese until I arrived at the University of Toronto, first year university. And because back in those days we still had grade 13, I was 19 by the time I got to university. So um, I just want to give that as a little bit of background because I'm not really a China scholar. I did four years of Chinese at the U of T. And then I got a scholarship to go to China and was really lucky to be placed in uh, Peking University, which I hate calling it Peking University. It's always Beijing University to me. <laughs> Peking is just like a continuing a bad mistake. Uh, it's Beijing University. And while I was at Beijing University, I, uh, you know, one of the reasons you go to China is not just to, you know, you don't go from your library or your classroom in Alberta, so you can go and sit in a library or a classroom 
in China. You go there for the for the experience, right? So any time I had an opportunity to go off campus and do something, I took it. So they asked me, teacher asked me uh, if I would like to go and do a TV show, and uh, I'd never done anything like that before. So why not, right? So I went uh, and did um, did a first skit. Uh, we're going to show a little bit of video. It's not the very first skit, but this is uh, a year after I was in China. Now I. I just find in general, sort of leap over to social commentary now, we kind of live in an age of celebrity, where celebrities, everybody loves celebrities, and celebrities have, seem to have a big impact on society, and often uh, it doesn't really matter what you became famous for, just the fact that you are famous, right? You're a celebrity, right? I mean, Kim Kardashian is famous for having a big bum, right? <laughs> but it's not, so sometimes it's not so much what you became famous for in the beginning, it's the fact that you are famous, and I, you know, did a couple of TV appearances, and then boom, all of a sudden, I'm this known figure, Bashan. And I just thought, uh, you know, lots of opportunities come with that. Uh, lots of opportunities to do more shows, lots of opportunities to do other stuff. Like, all of a sudden, they, well, why don't you, well, this is one of the first things I found, because I didn't, I wasn't famous until I was, no, so 23, 23, 24. And suddenly realized people are, like, asking me for my advice on everything. And uh, I remember in that year it was like the World Cup of Soccer and everyone wanted to know what I thought about the World Cup. Well in Canada now we do follow the World Cup, right? But in the 1980s nobody watched soccer. I, I had no idea who Maradona was. And people were asking me, what do I think about Maradona, right? Because this, this is the 1980s. Anyway, so when you're a celebrity, all of a sudden you have the status and everyone like, you have this respect and everything. And I just thought, well this is great. I can use this somehow, right? It's completely relations or exchange between Canada and China. Uh, and so that's what I've done with my career. I sort of became famous just by accident, and then I just realized, ah, I can do lots of things with this. Not necessarily just performing and being a comedian and, and doing TV shows, but you can also use this for a wide gamut of uh, activities and stuff between Canada and China. Anyway, I want to show a little bit of video because this is, uh, this was after a year in China, so I've done four years of Chinese at the University of Toronto, again, starting from zero. Can you imagine, I would think this is, this is kind of a weird difference between the way we study Chinese in Canada and the way people study English in China. Can you imagine if a Chinese person came to the Department of English and started first year university by learning the alphabet, and then after four years, they're supposed to have like a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature, right? They start by learning the alphabet. We, you know, <laughs> That's one of the problems with Chinese studies. Is really, we, we get to university and we start learning the alphabet. Um, and one of the things I found that, that, that one of my pet peeves now, I think, so many years later looking back, is that we're constantly telling people how difficult Chinese is. And uh, sure, maybe it's difficult. Learning any language is difficult. But like the last thing you want to tell somebody on the first day of class is, this is the world's most difficult language and you'll never learn it. <laughs> OK, let's begin. Right? My, my, my view is every language is difficult. English is a horrible language to try and learn if you don't have an innate, you know, if you're not in that environment. If you're trying to learn English from books, it's just a horrible, horrible language to learn. Uh, every language is different in different ways. It, Chinese is actually easier to learn in some ways than English or French. That's certainly what I found. When I, one of the things I loved about learning Chinese is that nouns no longer have gender, right? It's not masculine feminine, and verbs have no tenses. I mean, that's that right there. That's why I wanted to learn Chinese. I was tired of trying to memorize these noun genders and verb tenses. Chinese is perfect. So sure, the characters are hard. The tones take a little while to get used to. But in some senses, the Chinese language is easier to learn than English or French. And in fact, OK, it is, you know, the Chinese say, right? You can never, even native speakers of Chinese can never, there's always more to learn. Nobody knows everything, right? And especially a language as, as deep as, and rich as Chinese. But in fact, it's relatively easy. A year or two of Chinese will get you around China quite easily as a tourist, ordering food at a restaurant, figure out how to buy train tickets. You can get around, you can do a lot with a year or two of Chinese. So you don't have to. You know, it's not like when we start teaching people English, we immediately teach them Shakespeare, right? That's, that's, that's a few levels up. It's relatively easy to converse, and the same thing in, in Chinese. So that's kind of a long intro, actually. I just wanted to show a little bit of video here. This is me after four years of Chinese at the University of Toronto, and then I just spent one year in China. And so this is not my first appearance on television, but the very first 
Xiangchang I did with my mentor, the man in the middle, and uh, and his uh, partner, Tang Jiedong. Let's do that one.
I'd spent a lot of time getting away from comedy, trying to convince people I wasn't a comedian, I was more of a comedian, I was a cultural ambassador and everything. And sort of 15 years later, I realized, first of all, the comedy, sure, it actually is probably the hardest thing I do. It's much easier to be sort of straight and proper. It's very hard to be funny. Uh, especially, it's very hard to be funny for year after year after year after year. <laughs> um, but also, it didn't matter the Olympics or Expo or anything, this were, people don't remember those things. People remember the jokes. People remember comedy, because comedy is something, if you want to do cross-cultural communication or reach people across cultures, the best ways to do it are through music or drama or comedy, things like this, things that have an emotional connection rather than just a, a, a rational kind of connection. So I decided to kind of get back into comedy. But this time, instead of being a foreign student, just, you know, show me what you could do, and everything is kind of like, uh, you know, sort of test after test. I'm doing tongue twisters, I'm doing a little bit of this, it's sort of exceeding people's expectations every time. What I wanted to, I wanted to sort of get away from that mentor and student relationship, do solo comedy, sort of more in the Western stand-up comedy kind of style, and more talk about my real life story, rather than just pretending that I was, you know, doing a tongue twister on the spot. Uh, so a little bit getting away from that skill-based kind of performance, talking more about my real life experiences and trying to sort of find this blend between Chinese xiangchang and Western stand-up. And so this is a little clip, this is a performance I did last year in Beijing. And it's a, again, this, this is something I performed just two days ago at the Myra Horowitz, a little bit of my show, Dashen where I'm talking about picking a Chinese name. <laughs>
uh, these different styles of comedy, and, and how do you find the audience and, and uh, during your show? How you know would the audience respond to kind of a different style of comedy? So okay, that's interesting because usually what people ask you about is a different sense of humor, which is like really that's a different question. Different styles of comedy, um, because my feeling is that uh, man, there. I, I hesitate to say it because you know the problem is anytime you generalize about China and the West, these are such huge complex entities that any generalization is always right and always wrong. Um, that's why you can say anything about China because you're always right or you're always wrong at the same time. Um, different styles. So I think in, in large sense, the the sense of humor that we have is largely a sort of a universal human thing. For the most part, what we find funny, everybody finds funny. Their, their comedy around the world is very similar, but we do have different styles of comedy. And I think in China, there's a very different sort of uh, social acceptance or a different perception of what's appropriate. So whereas in the West, our comedy is much more open in the sense that you can, you know, you the word you can. I think there's more tolerance for using humor. For instance, in or you know, dark humor, black humor. Uh, uh, you're telling jokes when you're not supposed to be telling jokes, right? I think that sense in Chinese of when you're not supposed to be funny. There's a time and place to be funny. And in Chinese society, it seems that time and place is really limited. It's like, okay, now, stop. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in the West, we can be, like the idea that, you know, the Prime Minister of Canada would tell a joke on stage. You'd never get that in Chinese, right? Because that's just not appropriate. Um, so, for instance, telling like an off-color humor, uh, an off-color joke, a dirty joke, sexy joke or something. Chinese love sex jokes. <laughs> and they're all over it. If you've ever been to a banquet or, you know, if people together in a private setting, a lot of the humor is sexual, but not in public, right? So that's, that's again, the sense where the, the sense of humor is really similar. Sex jokes are funny. Yeah. But, you, but yeah, but where it's appropriate and where it's not appropriate, I think the sense of that is different. So for instance, in Western comedy, there's the concept that, um, it's okay to be offensive if you're offensive on an equal opportunity basis. If you're offensive about everybody, right? If you're, if you're making jokes about Jews, you better make jokes about Muslims, right? Because if you make jokes about everybody, it's okay. But if you're only making jokes about Jews or only making jokes about Muslims, then that's racist, right? But you can be racist as long as you're racist to everybody. <laughs> um, that's so, and, and that's the kind of sense that we don't have in Chinese. So Chinese, especially in a public setting, Chinese humor, you know, is very inoffensive. There's not that idea that it's okay to offend everybody. Normal, <laughs> it's dangerous to do that. <laughs> okay, so that I think that's an interesting. Yeah, the sense of humor is not necessarily, but the style of comedy. But again, I just to finish off the reason. The reason it's really difficult to talk about these generalities is that, for instance, the humor in North China is entirely different from Southern China. So there's not one Chinese style of humor or Chinese sense of humor, just as in Western humor. I mean, if you if you flick through the channels, there's a huge range of humor that are it's all American humor or Western humor. But uh, but you know it's a personal choice. It's like music, right? People like this kind of music. They like that kind of music. Your taste in music changes over time. Maybe now in this kind of environment you want to hear this kind of song, but you know some other time you might want to listen to some other kind of music. It's like that. So. It's very hard to generalize. Uh, that's good, thank you. Uh, and maybe uh, as you're thinking about, yeah, there are a lot of questions already. So, yeah, okay. Okay. yeah. Uh, first, uh, one of my best friends asked me to say thank you because she learned English from the publication that you made. <laughs> yes, she learned a lot. And uh, when she decided to immigrate,
but her dad was uh, a reporter stationed in Beijing for, for the long term. So she was, she, we're, we're the same age. I, we're, I think we were both born in 1965. She moved to China in 1966. Can you imagine that? One year old, 1966. We met at university when I went there in 1988. So she had gone through um, primary school, secondary school, and university, all at Beida. Beida Fuxiao, Beida Fuzhong, Beida Benke. Uh, so by the time, and I, I got, you know, I was there for two months and we're doing this skit together. So she was much better than I was. Um, but she, you know, we did it for something fun to do, but she didn't want to do it anymore. So she, she went back to her real life. And then, uh, and I just decided, you know, this is something that I wanted to keep doing and explore a little bit deeper. Uh, but if you go, if you go to my, this is a, thanks for the questions, this is a great opportunity to advertise my Weibo. <laughs> At fashion because I saw her just a few weeks ago at Beida for the 120th anniversary. And so uh, she, she married a guy from Beida, uh, a Finnish student from Finland. They lived in Hong Kong for a number of years, they moved back to Beijing, and now they live in, they live in Finland. But he does uh, work between Europe and, and, uh, and China. So, so now I have her on WeChat anyway. <laughs> so there's a picture. If you go back around May, May, uh, where's it? May 4th we went for the, for the ceremony. May 4th or May 5th, because we went a couple of days on my Weibo. There's a picture of Yulan. And thank, you know, I get that comment a lot. People say, I emigrated to Canada because of your TV show. And I think, oh man. <laughs> and that's again, that's, that's what I meant, the power of celebrity. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it honestly feels a little bit like Spider-Man. You know, all of a sudden you've been bitten by the spider and you have this sense of responsibility because people are all of a sudden are listening to you. And you're doing a show that's all you're doing is teaching English, but people are actually getting their entire impression of Canada from this TV show. And I understand that point. The first time I heard that, I thought that was crazy. You immigrated to Canada because of my show? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> but I realized, okay, these people are reaching a point in their life where they're, they're ready to emigrate. They have the conditions, you know, that's very Chinese way of saying it. That's my Chinese brain kicking in. Um, and you have a choice, right? Am I going to go to Australia? Am I going to go to New Zealand? Am I going to go to America, UK, or Canada? Those are your choices. And it's all like equal. Well, I'll pick Canada, because Canada is a friendly country. But that's <laughs> from Canada, okay. So maybe I'll run into them someday. So thanks very much for that. I feel, I feel a little bit... Sure. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. You know, for, I mean, as a parent in a mixed race family, so my, my wife is from Beijing, and of course we want the kids to grow up with a sense that they, you know, that's their culture as well, that, that they have a sense of belonging, uh, and that they have a foundation in the culture and the language and everything. Uh, but also as a parent, you have to recognize that kids find their own way, right? You can provide the resources, you can provide the exposure, you can encourage, you can force them for a couple of years, uh, but sooner or later, kids have to find their own path. And uh, I mean, it's, especially talking to high school kids, it's really difficult for me to sort of give you specific advice. You know, I was talking to a group of high school kids two days ago for the, the youth school program about uh, trying to encourage kids to have the U of A as a, as a target, right? You know, this is where you should be coming. Um, and one of the things I said to them is, you know, I, you know, I didn't start studying Chinese until I was 19. If you ask me at 17 what I wanted to do for a living, I had no idea. Um, um, so it's important, it's important just to stay open to opportunities. I would really, you know, the earlier you learn the language, the better. So I would really encourage people to do it, you know, to, to build that foundation before you're in university. Um, and obviously, I mean, China is historically and now is reclaiming its position as one of the biggest countries in the world, one of the most influential countries in the world, right? If you look at the span of history, China's had, you know, kind of a bad few hundred years, but they're back now, right? And so that's the reality of what we live in. You know, when Canadians ask, should we be doing business in China? It's like, you know, how do you answer a question like that? Well, well should we do business with America? I mean, it's there. Are you going to ignore America? You can't ignore China any more than you can ignore America. So there's a huge, there's a huge range of opportunities. Um, and I encourage people to, to find that. You know, again, come back, I just want to come back to that idea that Chinese is so difficult to learn. Yes, it's difficult to learn, but I think the main reason we don't learn Chinese well in the West is, first of all, we start late. That's the number one reason. So for people like me, not learning Chinese until first year university, that's the number one disadvantage we have. So the fact that you're doing it in high school, you're already better than that. Secondly, we do it in kind of a really limited way, right? We do two hours a week or something. How can you learn a language doing two hours a week? And thirdly, we don't really have immersion opportunities. Because you go to China, even if you go to China, often you're surrounded by other foreigners, and so many Chinese are learning English, they all want to practice English with you. So, so this is, you know, so for, for me, the, the first disadvantage was there. I didn't start till 19, but I really got into it. I really pushed it. So I, I sort of corrected for the second one. The third one, just by chance opportunity, I met those two gentlemen, and I started performing with them. And, you know, these, these were great teachers because these are guys that think about language all the time. And they, you know, every, every line that they do in this script, that's, that's, that's designed, they designed it that way. So they, these guys really focus on language. But for me, the biggest advantage was none of them spoke any English. So for the first, for two years or three years solid, I was hanging out with a group of people that were totally dysfunctional in English. And so we had to speak Chinese. So for me, that was the immersion environment. Yeah, thank you, Rajesh. So that just I mean, I just wanted to mention that because coming back to high school students, the fact that you're doing this before college, you're already like way ahead of where we were. So thanks, you explained it so eloquently. And there's also one added benefit of uh, learning a foreign language: is it dramatically re reduces your chance of getting old timers. So <laughs> okay, next question. Yes. Some of the students. Okay, maybe we'll get you to the students first. Okay, that one. <coughs> Yes, please. Speak up, please. What's that? You know how you're a comedian? What's the best joke you've ever made? <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, so that, that kind of comes back to the idea that there are different kinds of comedy, because I don't really tell jokes. Right? I tell stories. It's, it's anecdotal comedy. It's more about me. Like, Dashan is the joke. <laughs> Right? So, uh, I don't know. And it really depends on whether it's Chinese or English, too. Like, jokes just don't translate. Just, yeah. I, 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 sorry, it's really it's an impossible question to answer. I just would say that Dashing is the joke. So I, I just, that's what I try to do, is, is just try to be myself and tell people funny experiences from my life. Yes, dear? How is your day? How is your day? So far? Like today? 
Real good. Real good. You want to hear what I did today? I, this morning, I went to visit all the Rosewells in Edmonton. I got a really weird name, eh? Rosewell, R-O-W-S-W-E-L-L. The spelling doesn't make any sense. So, but we've known in our family that there were two brothers that came to Canada, and in 1850, one stayed in Ontario, one came out west. Apparently, they were like the first hundred people in Edmonton. There was a Rosewell in that group. And so there's a, there's a community of Rosewells here. So I went to have breakfast with them this morning. <laughs> we're like six generations apart, but I thought that was pretty cool. And, and coming here, I, I, like, I like talking to people. It, you know, I, I, this is sort of why I'm doing more live performing now than TV, because TV is really just phony, kind of artificial environment, right? You're in an audience. Like if we were in a studio audience, you might have people like this, but you're talking to a camera here all the time. You're, the people are really just backdrop. So I really like doing these kind of events where we get face-to-face -face interaction and people can ask really weird questions. <laughs> Hello, uh, Tasha. Okay, hi. Yes, thank you very much for coming, and uh, it's a great, great pleasure to see you here in Edmonton. Uh, my name is Tom, and uh, to be fair, and I think you share a lot of story. If you don't mind, I share this story with you here as well. Um, I came to Canada when I was seven years old to see the first foreigner whose name is Norman Benchon. I think a lot of Chinese here knows that. At that time, I saw him. I said, "This is, must be a fake." Fever. Until 30 years ago, you showed up on TV. I think you made three damages for Chinese people. The first thing you did is when you showed up, one billion Chinese people jaw dropped. <laughs> so that's what I call facial damage. And when you start to talk about in the next 30 minutes also, I think we all laugh our heads off. So that's the second physical damage you made. And the very last one, in the last 30 years, uh, you made all of China allow you to death. And that is the third damage you made. <laughs> anyway, put a joke aside. Um, Broken jaws, head popped off, and all dead. <laughs> use that. I gotta use that. That's good material. Anyway, uh, I want to ask you uh, three questions here. The first question I want to ask you is, as a foreigner, you uh, learned Chinese, which was regarded as the most difficult language in the world. Still, I've been surrounded by the foreigners who said that to me time and time again. So my question to you, number one, is what made you so successful in speaking Chinese? If you can give one, two reasons or secrets, whatever you want to share with everybody. And the second question I want to ask you is uh, how long in a reasonable term you think for a foreigner who knows next to nothing of Chinese to the point you can speak reasonably conversational Chinese? Third question I would like to ask you is I kind of watched all your shows and I noticed you start to learn Chinese since you were in even maybe start high school, I could be remember all. So my question to you is, is why? Why do you want to learn Chinese in such a young age? Thank you very much. Okay, remind me again the first question. <laughs> Alzheimer's. <laughs> you want to say it again or no? <laughs> okay, the first question is, uh, Chinese language is very difficult, I think, because of the style is so different. Here we have the alphabet, but in Chinese yeah. it's all pictures, right? Okay. So how how could you tell? How to learn? Okay. How do you learn? What's so, the best way? Yeah, and again, like I said at the beginning, I think you know there's some things that are true about that, but we talk far too, you know. Uh, we, I think we focus on that far too much. How difficult it is! How difficult it is! Why don't we tell people sometimes that it's actually easy? to learn conversational Chinese. You know, my nephew did Chinese at the University of Ottawa and then went on an exchange yeah, with the Confucius Institute uh, scholarship and spent three months, I think, at Sichuan uh, And then I heard him on the phone. So he did three years of Chinese in Canada and then three months in Sichuan, and I heard him on the phone speaking to his teacher, and it was fluent. So three, you know, three years in Ottawa learning Chinese, and you can talk. You can have a good. And he was even using like mean, you know, proper sort of respect to the teacher. He was, 
he was, uh, so, you know, I've, I've met students in China that come over that have done two or three years in college here, and they're quite functional. You know, you're still making mistakes, I'm still making mistakes. But, uh, but it's not that difficult to get to a level where you're conversational, functional, you're, and you're, you're still working on it. I have a friend, in, uh, a linguist, and he's a PhD, right? And, uh, so I, I have trouble arguing with him. But he, he once made a point, he used an example. He said, you know, Chinese is so difficult because the characters are just crazy. Like, I used an example. How many native speakers here, native speakers of Chinese, know how to write the character He said, I, you know, in university, you ask PhDs, you ask university professors, and this is a really simple word, sneeze. Okay, how many people here who speak English, how many know how to spell the word sneeze? <laughs> okay, yeah, sneeze, but nobody knows how to write it. Okay, so I said, yeah, you're right, but from another perspective, you never need to write that word. <laughs> Right? And first of all, it's spoken. It's spoken Chinese. It's not, you know, it's not something you would normally write. And if you're going to write with it, you write, you know, with your thumbs now anyway. Yeah. Right? P-I. And it comes out. Apenti. <laughs> right. D-A-P-E-N-T-I. There it is. So you don't need to write it, right? So yes, it's difficult, but we can get around that. Uh, the way I did it, I, I think what really worked for me, and you know, it's not like I'm some educational expert and I designed a program for myself. I think what really worked for me is just that I got out of the classroom and I just, I made Chinese my own language. I think that's one thing. So it starts as a foreign language and you've got to find a way to turn this foreign language into your second language. And that is, uh, sometimes I find it easier to say in Chinese, that's a true debianha, right? That's a, that's a qualitative change. That's a qualitative change because you've taken something that belongs to someone else and you've made it your own, right? So it's not your first language, it's not your native language, but it's your language, it's your second language. And so that's why, like for instance, you notice when I do educational programs, I've done show programs teaching Chinese, I've also done programs teaching uh, English and Chinese. And I never say, you know, the Chinese say this, the Chinese say that. I say, in Chinese, we say. Because Chinese is my language now, right? I, it, it's, I use it to express my thoughts and my feelings. It's a tool that I, you know, you go to Home Depot and you pay money to buy a hammer, that's your hammer. It doesn't belong to Home Depot anymore. And I think the same thing with language. I feel that Chinese is my language. It's the language that I use to express my ideas. And I think that's an important thing to, on a philosophical kind of level, to make it your own and to use it in your own daily life. Don't think of it as somebody else's language that you're constantly learning. Yeah. Future time restraining word. Yeah, time restraining, sorry. For oh, uh, maybe two, two more quick questions, so uh, yes. I'll try to be quicker, Hugh. Yeah. I get excited. Yeah, sorry? Oh. No. Yeah. Um, there is a really famous uh, comedian uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong? Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> From Yu Wei. Yu Wei. I, I really want to bring him here. Um, like, do you have any idea how, how I can Are you bring him here? <laughs> well, apparently he came, right? In 2008? He performed here in 2008. So I, mentioned, I made a point of mentioning that, because here's a guy who came to Edmonton, he graduated in 1984, right, with a degree in philosophy, a BA in philosophy, right? So for anybody who tells you a BA in philosophy is a useless degree, this guy is like one of the biggest stars in Hong Kong, and he is basically the first person to take stand-up comedy and do it in Chinese. Now, not a lot of people in mainland China know him, because he only performs in Cantonese. But he, yeah, he, he that's, that's one of the contributions that U of A has made to China. So a lot of people from Shanghai or, you know, from mainland China, we know Zhou Libo. Well, Huang Dehua is basically, Zhou Libo stole his idea from Huang Dehua and took that idea to Shanghai and made Hai Tai Chi College. And now everyone who's doing sort of solo stand-up comedy in China, basically he's the, he's the beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's really cool. That's a really cool link to U of A. Sorry, the one, one time. Deo Wang is his English name. Deo, I don't even know how to say his name in Cantonese, but Wang Dabai in Mandarin. Thank you for the Q&A session. Dashan, did you have a reverse culture shock after you moved back to China? Uh, I mean, to China. So in China, yeah. you are celebrity, you have you know, order, order. Yeah. So that, that is true. I mean, yeah. Especially as a Westerner in China, because you do get used to sort of having a special status. 
right? And that's true for any Westerner living in China. I think you, you get used to that. You get used to that kind of privilege. And for me, of course, the privilege of being a celebrity. Um, but on the other hand, I'd have to say, first of all, people ask me, you know, when are you going to... Uh, there's kind of a misunderstanding of... I actually left China in 1995, right? And I, I've had Canada as my home base since 1995. But in fact, I'm still half the time in China, half the time here. So I do get a sense of that reverse culture shock, but I, because I keep going back and forth, I find actually that the two, for me personally, it works out really well because it's great to be a celebrity, but you don't want to be a celebrity all the time. So it's actually nice to get away from that, right? And uh, you know, any Westerner who's been in China knows our Chinese food is great, right? But after a week, you really wish you could have a hamburger. <laughs> so, so for me, I, you know, one of the things that's worked out really well for me is that I'm able to balance by going back and forth, and that's kind of work, life, Chinese, Western, celebrity, ordinary guy. You know, that all kind of balances out for me. But it is true, there is, yeah. But you know, again, if we come back to that high school question, one of the great things about learning a foreign language is you can't really understand your own language until you speak a second language, just like you know, patriotism or your, your, your national pride or anything, you can't really understand your own country until you've lived abroad. Because you don't have any perspective, that's, uh, yeah. And you don't, so when you only speak one language, you don't recognize the difference between a thought and the way it's expressed. You only know one expression. But teaching you a second language teaches you that there is a difference, there's the way, there's, there's a thought and there's an expression, and those are different things. So yeah, I don't think you know, you can understand that only speaking one language. For sure. Just a quick example of uh, Dachan, uh, just uh, while you were visiting the Bacteria collection, I know you were looking at this painting beautifully, and then suddenly you just asked in Chinese, okay, how do you say, <laughs> So actually, he's thinking more in Chinese uh, sometimes, and then so looking on that one. So if you've got like this huge painting, and you only show part of the painting, in Chinese we call that Zhibu, right? It's a, Portion? What do you call it? A selection? Yeah. A study. It's a study. Okay. So it's like a huge banner or something, and you only look at one little corner. That's a study. Okay. Jibu. See, I'm learning English. Every day. One more over here. I'll try to do quick. So quick question. So he mentioned the Roman basu. Yes. I don't know which one you want. Roman basu is Canadian. So Donald Basu, why Donald Basu is famous? Because he was selected by China now. Right. But uh, my question is, do you sometimes think you're going to fame, because there's so many Koreans and Chinese, yeah, speak very well Chinese. Do you think you're going to fame in China because sometimes there's one reason, you are Canadian. You're going to come people from the United States. <laughs> you are Canadian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Along, uh, That's definitely a huge benefit, yeah. yeah. So for instance, I mean specifically, what was it, 1996 was the bombing of the uh, Chinese embassy in Yugoslavia, yeah. in uh, Belgrade. And actually that was a NATO bombing, and Canada's a member of NATO, but the but U.S. took all the blame for it, because it was a US, it's an American plane, I suppose. Um, but yeah, at the time, all American programming was taken off Chinese TV, and my programming was put back on. <laughs> I, just, I didn't remind people, Canada's in NATO too, you know. Let's, let's skip over that. But yeah, certainly, because, yeah, if you're, if you're if foreign national in China, if you're Japanese, if you're American, these are problematic relationships, and the relationship with Canada is not problematic. And there's certainly, you know, any celebrity, there's, uh, there's random, any celebrity knows this too. You know, I'm I'm lucky because I got a couple of lucky breaks. It doesn't matter how hard I work for something. There are always lucky breaks, and I wasn't, you know, but I, I so there's there's a chance opportunity there, and the tune is famous because Norm, you know, Chairman Mao wrote that elegy, um, um, in in memory of Norman Bethune. I'm famous because I was on CCTV, right? I wouldn't be famous without CCTV. But uh, on top of that, of course, then there's 30 years of keeping working at it. Lots of foreigners appear on television. Lots of people have breaks, but not everybody follows up on it. So that's kind of a balance. Yes, Maybe do you? Just one last well, yeah. Question. Yeah. Uh, my mom and my dad and me love you so much. We're from a smaller country of China. We love you for more than 20 or more than 20 years. Where are you from? Uh, from Hanzhen. Hanzhen, Jebu. Yes. And then <laughs> 
um, two questions. Uh, like I used to be a high school, like uh, I teach Chinese uh, uh, here in Canada. In yeah. I used to be a, a Chinese teacher here, and uh, I. To tell you the truth, my, because of you, my mom even asked me uh, to marry a uh, Canadian guy. <laughs> 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 I think that, uh, Canadian guys are so friendly. And, and uh, yeah, so, uh, but like, uh, to be a teacher here, yeah, working is not very easy. And uh, I know you, you have, you've been in your career in China for more than 20 years, and uh, you must uh, um, meet some difficulty, and how do you conquer it? Like, uh, should I continue my dream, or like, uh, to uh, change my dream to other career. Thank you very much. So your dream is to be to teach Chinese, is that right? Is yeah, that yeah, yeah, but it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, I know through this uh, public school program in Edmonton, I what one thing I've learned in this visit that Edmonton has one of the best Chinese programs, maybe the best of any any public school system in North America. So congratulations for that. It's really when I, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't even have Chinese friends. I think there was one Japanese girl in my grade. There were no Chinese Canadians in, and now I go back to that high school and it's like 60% Chinese. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, in general, I think you have to follow your dreams. Like, that's a cliche, right? But nobody, no, nobody's life is easy. No career is easy. Uh, you know, and I obviously had a lot of big breaks and, you know, you get a lot of uh, preferential treatment as a celebrity and everything. Um, and as a foreigner in China, there's a lot of preferential treatment. But on the other hand, that's, it's not an easy life either. You know, how many foreigners really stay in China more than five years? After five years, they, you know, it, it's real burnout time because it's not easy. So sometimes people only see the, the surface, right? Everything's easy on the surface. But I would, uh, I would stick with it because it's certainly a, it's a, it's a worthwhile pursuit. And I mean, uh, one of the reasons I really like to be re-engaged with university after being away for so many years, I, I serve on the Board of Governors at, um, on Governing Council at U of T, and it's a voluntary position, but it's just a way to get involved with the university. And one of the things is you really feed off that energy of just being surrounded by young, smart people all the time. So I think that's one of the great benefits of being a teacher, right, is that you're, you're always, you're like a vampire, you're always kicking that energy from your students. <laughs> So I would say stick with it. Okay. Now thank you so much. Please join me in thanking Dachen for his inspiring thank you. Uh, I'll step out of the room and I'll think, I can't believe it. I just went to the U of A and the front row was full of teachers and I just called them vampires. <laughs>